So Mark 3, verses 7 through 35, and I'm actually going to read a portion of that. I'm going to read verses 20 through 35, because this is where I think the story ultimately heads. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of the demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother? Who who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it declares about Jesus to us, his person, his work, his glory, all things, Lord, that we love to explore each week when we gather here. So walk us through this text and give us courage and confidence as we move forward as a church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, I trust that is not news to you this morning. I trust that you understand Paul was not revealing something new in Ephesians 6.12, but reminding the church at Ephesus of something very old. That ever since the first serpent slithered into the garden to deceive and divide and devour and destroy, we have been engaged in a spiritual war. One that is still raging over the souls of men and women, including yours. So when Paul says things like, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and... Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I trust that you're hearing loud and clear both the sobering reality that Satan is scheming over you today. And I trust that you hear the weight of responsibility that you have in the battle. To be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And part of that means, as Paul continues, clothing yourself with the armor of his truth, his righteousness, his gospel, his faithfulness, 
His salvation, His Spirit, and His Word, and expressing faith in all of the above in prayer and proclamation. And don't miss what Paul is obviously saying there. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand. Take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The obvious implication, if your strength isn't in the strength of His might, if His truth is not your belt, if His righteousness is not your breastplate, if His gospel is not your shoes, His faithfulness is not your shield, if His salvation is not your helmet, and His word is not your sword, wielded not by you, but by the Spirit Himself, then you won't stand against the devil's schemes against you. You won't stand tall and firm in the evil day. You will fall. So hear Paul saying, Satan schemes over you. Hear Paul saying, you have the responsibility to be strong in his strength and to clothe yourself with his armor. Hear Paul warning that if you don't, you will not stand. You will fall. But I also want you to hear Paul announcing loud and clear as well. In His strength, by His truth, in His righteousness, by His gospel, through His faithfulness, in His salvation, by His Spirit, wielding the sword of His word, you will withstand, you will not fall, you will persevere. And you will withstand and persevere and prevail, not because Ephesians 6 is somehow portraying you, as some skilled, mighty warrior prevailing over Satan and his host and their schemes. You will withstand, you will persevere, you will prevail because you are in Christ, who is the mighty warrior on display in Ephesians 6. Not you, not me. It's in His strength that we find our strength. It's in His truth that we're protected from Satan's lies. It's in His righteousness that the devil's accusations against our unrighteousness don't condemn us. It's in His gospel that our feet stand firm. It's in His faithfulness that the fiery darts of the devil aimed at our unfaithfulness are extinguished. It's in His salvation that we're protected from any and every attempted lethal knockout punch of the devil. That's the imagery. You will get punched. But in Christ, you will not finally go down for the count. And it's by His Spirit, whom He has sent as a seal of His promise in His Word, that Satan and his host are not only resisted, as is the imagery of the other pieces of the armor, but defeated again and again. And I I open with that because I think this is what is on display in our text in Mark this morning. Frankly, just like it's been since chapter 1 when Jesus received the Spirit at his baptism and that was empowered by the Spirit to prevail over Satan and his schemes against Jesus in the desert. 
And I think it has continued to be on display every time Jesus has healed a sick person or cast out a demon or proclaimed the gospel or announced the forgiveness of sins and called men to follow him. And by God's grace, in you, through you, within this congregation and through this congregation, as we'll see in our text this morning, the strong man will continue to be bound. And his house will continue to be plundered by the one who's stronger than him. So let's watch it happen in our text. Let's watch it happen first by Jesus' compassionate authority. And let's watch it happen second by Jesus' bold defense, both of which should characterize a church that follows him. Let's keep in mind what just happened in our text. The hostility of the scribes and the Pharisees escalated, remember, from internal and unspoken to verbal accusation to behind closed doors plotting against Jesus' life. And I bring all that up in light of the way that we open to bring out of the realm of merely jealous, power-hungry, threatened unbelievers bring it out of that realm, everything that's been taking place in Jesus' life, and into the realm of spiritual warfare. As, as those men, in their unbelief, were allied with Satan in his rage against Jesus, their scheme against Jesus was his scheme against Jesus. Their fury over their little kingdom on earth being plundered of disciples was his fury over his kingdom being plundered of his slaves. And I think the threat to his kingdom and theirs is clear in this text by the growing mob that's following who? Not them, but Jesus. By the time Jesus goes home in verse 20, the scene is so chaotic that he and his disciples are not even able to stop and eat. People just keep coming. In verse 9, the crowd is so large and so desperate that they have to get into a boat and push out to sea out of the physical reach of the mob because, verse 9, lest they crush him. And I think we can divide this mob up into at least two groups. There's probably more. But at least two. There are Obviously, there are the sick who are pictured there and I hope this isn't offensive. I'm not trying to minimize or make light of any of them and their sicknesses, but, but if you're like me, you have to try to visualize the scene, don't you? You've got to try to visualize the scene that Mark sets of Jesus and his disciples having to commandeer a boat and push out to sea or else they're going to be crushed or trampled by this desperate mob. And I'm trying to visualize that, and forgive me, but the scene that kept coming to mind was the, the awful videos that you see every year of, of, of Black Friday crowds fighting past each other to get the thing that they think they need most. Which, again, that creates an entirely inaccurate picture of what's taking place here. It probably creates an accurate, accurate picture of the desperation, but with the wrong motive, obviously, between the two pictures. So, so in order to get that picture, you have to replace the selfish greed of a Black Friday mob with the utter desperation of this crowd. I think that's the picture. 
many of whom were actually breaking the laws of the Old Testament of isolation for the severity of their sicknesses just for one chance to touch Jesus and be healed. And verse 10 says, Jesus healed many. But there is another crowd within this crowd. And these are the verse 11 people possessed with unclean spirits who fall before him and who cry out, You are the Son of God. Keep in mind, the Bible says those are the unclean spirits crying out, You are the Son of God. And the reason I think they should remain separate and not a subgroup of the whole. So, not among the sick are lepers and paralytics and blind and demon-possessed. The reason I think that's not it is because of a few other passages that I think explain what's happening here, situations like this. One of those is Acts 16, where Paul and Silas have just baptized Lydia. And they're on their way from the riverside to Lydia's house for prayer. And a slave girl whom Luke says is possessed follows them crying. If you remember, these men are servants of the Most High God and proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Acts 16 says that after many days, Paul commands the evil spirit to come out of her because her efforts were in reality what they were intended to be all along, a distraction to the gospel, not a help. The other text that comes to mind is James 2.9. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder, which is entirely different than saying they're repentant, which is nowhere even hinted at in Scripture. So there's no denying throughout the Gospels that the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil that Paul says we are at war with, there's no question that they know who Jesus is. But their public acknowledgement of that fact is never something that's welcome or helpful in the Bible, but always distracting, always undermining, which seems to be ultimately the goal, which is why Jesus casts them out and orders them to keep silent. And I, don't want, to sh- I want to share what Mark Strauss says about this because I think it's great and then I want to share a quote from another guy David Garland that I also think is supportive and really really helpful so first Mark Strauss this is on he's commenting on Jesus command to the demons to be silent and he says his purpose for this command is likely twofold first to demonstrate his supreme authority over Satan's forces second and I love this one second because the demons are inappropriate heralds of his person and mission. And he points us back to chapter 1 and verse 25, where the unclean spirit says to Jesus, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God, which Jesus does not receive as a compliment from him, but rebukes him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. The other quote is from David Garland, explaining Mark 3 in light of Mark 1. And I, again, I think it's really good. He says, unlike the demon who hailed him as the Holy One of God, there, as in those in chapter 3, 
Their cry of recognition acknowledges him as the Son of God and, get this, more closely echoes the heavenly voice at his baptism. And I paused there. If you're wondering where he's going with that, because it's a weird thing to say, it provides an explanation. He says, the voices of demons are always off key. The demons utter orthodox confessions, but are by no means well pleased. And I'm adding for clarification in case you didn't see the connection. The demons echo the father's voice, but in an off key way, meaning whereas the father's acknowledgement of his son was in his pleasure in him. The demons utter orthodox confession, but they are by no means well pleased by the presence of the son of God. So not well pleased. Inappropriate heralds. Jesus casts them out and orders them to silence. And in so doing, he plunders the kingdom and he sets prisoners free. And I don't think it is an accident at all that the scene then moves from the sea to the mountain. Where Jesus appoints his disciples to be the heralds of his person and his work and his gospel. Don't overlook the significance of the number 12 when Jesus appoints 12. I want to provide some other voices giving explanation for that because I think they're helpful, they're authoritative. R.C. Sproul, a few great quotes. Twelve apostles recalls the 12 tribes of Israel that were the foundation for the Old Covenant community. By calling 12 apostles, Jesus established a new covenant community that would stand in continuity with ancient Israel without repeating its story exactly. And then look at this awesome parallel that he draws. This is confirmed in Jesus calling the 12 to him on a mountain. For the old covenant community was formally constituted under Moses at Mount Sinai, On a mountain, Jesus inaugurated a new era and a new community, fulfilling Moses' work and stepping into his role as mediator of a new covenant. And so, so relevant to a church family. I just want to echo what Grant Osborne says. That the emphasis on the twelve is as a group, not individuals. Makes me think of a passage that we often recite here. Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. But that grace given to each one of us individually was not given to function independently of the one body, but within the body and for the sake of the body, as Paul goes on to say. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, 
for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly according to the grace given to each one of us individually verse 7 what happens it accomplishes the purpose and makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love Listen to these extremely challenging words by James Edwards, and then I'm going to stop bombarding you with quotes. I found so much help in this text, and I thought a few of these were just too good to not share. So excuse the number of quotes in a small section this morning, but this is really good. Disciples, do not decide to follow Jesus and do him a favor in so doing. Rather, his call supersedes their wills. Summoning one who does not intend to follow. That's you. That's me. It's everyone who truly follows. And debarring one who would. The society into which he calls them is determined not by their preferences, but by his summons. Its members have nothing in common except his sovereign call, apart from which the community cannot exist. Isn't isn't that good? The point being, this community of faith is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about your preferences. It's not about mine. It was created by God, and it is commissioned together as one body by God for his purposes, which I'm going to simply summarize from our text as preaching the gospel and watching the sovereign spirit do as he pleases in the hearts of men with the gospel, which, brothers and sisters, I put absolutely no restrictions on. When I consider everything that we've said this morning, we serve in his strength, by his truth, in his righteousness, in his gospel, by his faithfulness, in his salvation, with the sword of his word wielded by the sovereign spirit of God who does what he pleases for the plundering of Satan's kingdom and the expansion of God's kingdom. And we are simply chosen and commissioned vessels that come together to meet with him as he called his disciples in chapter 3 and verse 14 and to go into the world of this present darkness together doing what? Praying at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication that words may be given to us in opening our mouths boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel and in so doing, trusting the sovereign spirit to wield the sword of his word to call and to save and to heal and to commission others. It is compassionate authority that is on display in Jesus in verses 7 through 19 and conferred on his disciples to continue his work of plundering Satan's kingdom. 
but compassionate authority, which looks very much to use the offensive-defensive pictures. Compassionate authority looks very much on the offensive in verses 7 through 19. And I just personally think it's balanced by a bold defense of the truth in verses 20 through 35. Totally acknowledge, I may be oversimplifying this, but the compassionate authority the church is supposed to reflect, personally, I think is the easier of the two. It's us on the offensive, seeing needs, believing that the gospel can meet every need, and believing that the Spirit can wield the sword of His word for the saving of souls and the healing of the nations. But the bold defense that's on display in Jesus and hence required of us, it hits a little closer to home. Because it implies in our text that hurtful accusations will be made. And that really precious relationships may be forever changed. So let's watch this unfold in Jesus' own life in our text. The scene in verses 20 through 35 shifts from the mountain to his home, which most people geographically just agree is a return to the home of Simon Peter, where he called home in chapter 1. So they return. The crowd follows. Verse 20 says, So that they could not even eat. And when his family heard, They went out to seize him. Which means more than they went out to beg Jesus to come home and to get some rest so that he could continue his ministry. And I think their intentions in seizing him are clarified by what Mark says next. Verbalizing what they kept on saying. So his family heard it. They went out to seize him, and they kept on saying, he's out of his mind. The the picture is, is, this is difficult to process. Because the picture is of Jesus' own family trying to fight their way through the crowd. Over and over, apologizing for the behavior of Jesus and just wanting to take him home, get him some rest, get him some food, so that he'd be himself again. Before all of this reckless behavior ever since his baptism. Consider these words from Daniel Aiken. They're, honestly, they are difficult to read. And I'm going to read another quote from James Edwards right after that's just as difficult. But I I think they capture what his family feared at this point. Look at this. From his family's perspective, Jesus is a religious fanatic who's hurting the family name. And he's also a danger to himself. He has to be stopped. He needs a straitjacket and a padded cell. Today, they might have said, give the man some drugs that will calm him down. James Edwards writes similarly. At any rate, those closest to Jesus 
believe his conflicts with the authorities to be mistaken, and they come to retrieve him, perhaps even to deprogram him. In short, they just want Jesus back. And their intention seems to be to force him to quit ministry. But watch closely where where the narrative goes. So in verses 20 and 21, we see his well-meaning, concerned family apologizing for him, trying to step in and save him from himself. But that scene eventually picks up down in verse 31, and not until verse 31, because it's interrupted by another scene within that scene. And the two are meant to be connected in more ways than simply their timing and their setting. So there is this crowd. There's sick people who need healing. There's his family fighting through the crowd, apologizing profusely for his behavior, fully intent on taking hold of him and bringing him home, nursing him back to health and sanity. And then there are the scribes there. Not apologizing for him because he's lost his mind, but accusing him of being possessed by the devil. And while the family, out of sincere concern for him, apologizing for him, categorically is certainly a less severe, a less serious posture toward him. I want you to consider David Garland's comments on this, because I personally agree with them. Both Jesus' closest relatives and the theological specialists from Jerusalem offer mistaken speculations about Jesus. Ironically, neither has any inkling of the truth. The insertion of the Beelzebub accusation between the bid to curb Jesus' ministry makes the point that any attempt to derail or redirect his mission is as serious a sin of defaming him as Satan might do. To avert Jesus from his mission is satanic, as Peter will abruptly discover late in the narrative. I think it is significant here that nobody is trying to deny the miraculous things that are being done by Jesus. But the scribes do question the source of his power. And they ultimately attribute what Jesus says is the work of the Spirit to Satan, which Jesus says is a blasphemy that will never be forgiven because it is so contrary to a gospel in which the same Spirit they deny is the one who pierces the hardest of hearts with the sword of the Spirit for the salvation of their souls. Which is what verse 28 gloriously holds out. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. Except that which continues in rejection of the work of the spirit. In the gospel for the salvation of men. The imagery. That Jesus creates in his response. To the charge of casting out demons by the power of Satan. Is just incredible. So. I I think we get the logic that he presents first of the kingdom or the house divided against itself. It's pretty obvious logic. It's the strong man imagery, though, 
that is particularly striking. Make no mistake, in verse 27, Satan is the strong man. His house is the world of this present darkness. His goods are those people whom he continues to hold captive. And I think we should be reminded of Ephesians 6 because there, remember, we are not the mighty warrior that prevails over the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of this present darkness, including Satan himself. Jesus is there. Just like here, Jesus is the one who enters the strong man's house and binds him and then plunders his goods. And what Jesus is saying here is to not even try to improve upon David, David Garland's words. If Jesus does not work by Satan's power, however, another explanation is at hand. That a stronger one has bound the strong man and is pillaging his house. What is happening is not the result of civil war within Satan's ranks, but a direct onslaught from outside. I love that. And those who think, those who don't understand, I should say, Satan to be bound until a thousand year future kingdom, I think, are missing a very significant theme in Jesus' ministry. From his triumph over Satan in the desert temptation to every healing he performed in his earthly ministry, to every devil cast out, every pronouncement of forgiveness, all the way up to the cross, where Paul says in Colossians 2, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and in so doing, he what? disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. The seed of the woman crushed the head of the serpent, bound the strong man, plundered his kingdom, and continues to, to plunder his kingdom. The text ends on a Sobering but glorious note. It shifts back to his mother and his brothers. Remember, they've come to seize him. They've fought the crowds. They've apologized profusely for him. They're concerned for him, genuinely. They just want him back. I'm going to insert something not in the text that I think is entirely feasible because I can just see the scribes and the Pharisees there accusing and seeing Jesus' mother and brothers fighting the crowds, apologizing for him, the crowd yelling to Jesus that his mother and his brothers are outside seeking him, and the scribes and the Pharisees just saying with their smug grins, you should listen to your family, Jesus. hoping that he just caves to all the pressure. 
And before Jesus even speaks in response, the imagery of the scene captures what he's about to say because it's his mother and his brothers along with the scribes and Pharisees standing outside. All the while, according to verse 34, Jesus sits with his disciples on the inside. I don't think that is mistaken imagery. The way Jesus puts it in verse 35 is here are my mother and my brothers. Those sitting here on the inside. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother, which I'm going to just guess strikes us somewhat sharply because it seems to be a really demeaning thing for him to say against his family and a really confusing, potentially, precedent to set. And again, I'm going to invoke David Garland who gives us a great answer. When Jesus asks, who are my mother and my brothers? It strikes us as a rude disregard of the feelings of his family. But it would have been a comfort to those first Christians who lost their families because of their loyalty to Christ. They can be cheered that they are not without family, but have become a part of a greater family of faith. The setting in which grave charges are leveled against Jesus indicates, however, that becoming a member of this new family has its costs. Devotion to him is likely to bring abuse and persecution. Jesus is not demeaning the importance of the nuclear family, but he is proclaiming the appearance of a new family where ties run even deeper than blood, where unity is even more clearly on display, and where mission is even more powerfully and purposefully defined and executed. So Christ Fellowship, may we, caught, may we count the cost of our calling. May we strive together for unity. May we uphold and support and serve one another in our sufferings. May we function together with the compassionate authority of Jesus for the good of others in the gospel. And may we boldly defend in the face of opposition and accusation. And may God, through Christ, by the Spirit, keep plundering and collapsing the kingdom of darkness until it is reduced to nothing and he himself is cast into the lake of fire. And may we pray that through this body, as you go forth from here preaching and praying and believing, may we pray that the kingdom would be plundered once again this week and that the kingdom of God would grow which is the end to which I'll pray. Join me. Let's pray. Lord, this text is big. It's heavy. 
it's cosmic, it's, um, it's in a realm, Lord, that we can't see or, or touch or, or feel or, or hear, but that we know, Lord, is out there. We wrestle against principalities and powers, cosmic powers of this present darkness. And yet, Lord, we do not do that alone or in our own strength or even remotely wondering for a second what the outcome is going to be. The outcome is settled. So, Lord, as you've instructed, may we go forth from here in your strength, clothed confidently in your righteousness, armed, Lord, with your gospel, your word, and a faith that is given to us as a gift so that we might pray and proclaim and just watch the sovereign spirit thrust the sword of his word for the accomplishing of miracles that fulfill your purposes for the short time that this world has yet to remain. So plunder the kingdom of Satan this week, Lord. May your kingdom be built and may your kingdom come. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.